Becoming Human, episode 37, and today is going to be a little different. See, I usually begin with some sort of opening, a quote, a poem, a story, some sort of picture, something that explores the topic that we're about to interact with without overly interpreting the meaning of it. Uh, But that artistic role, it's going to be throughout the episode today, and that's because I want to talk about something that requires a little bit of extra nuance. Death. On a show called Becoming Human, this is probably something we should do. Death is the most inevitable and ubiquitous experience of being alive. We all have an end, and we experience the end of others regularly. But death is also something that is hard to dissect. You know, we could explain the science of how the body dies and decays. We could try to explain the metaphysics of death. You know, what is the philosophical and existential role of this phenomenon? Or we could go straight through the psychological and sociological ramifications of death in a detailed explanation. But if there is one topic where the academic should step back a bit to make way for the human needs, this is it. I've officiated hundreds of funerals, and I'm not sure why, but a lot of them seem to happen around this time of year, or maybe that's just my memory. And and generally, I've witnessed a culture that doesn't deal with death well, whether it's because loss is always difficult to process, or because we just don't consider how to interact with death, or because the interaction before us, is it's threatening or uncomfortable or overwhelming. And throughout this podcast, we talk about finitude a lot, especially lately. We've been emphasizing that our limited mortal lives are constantly staring us in the face. So we should talk about this. But I want to take a different angle than I usually do on the show. I, I, want, I want to share some things that I've used to help others and, you know, quite honestly, to help myself. Ultimately, My hope of this episode is that we can explore the process of dealing with death, but also that we can arrive at a healthy approach for what is destined to affect us all. So I want to share a story and a reflection that I I use often, but first we're going to get into a few thoughts on death and a concept that is essential to any loss and, and has been necessary in every funeral I've ever done. Of course, you can find more content ways to subscribe, contact information at my website, tylerkleeberger.com. And thank you to everyone who supports the show. I'm honored by the generosity of those who listen. And all of that can be found at uh, a site called Kofi, ko-fi.com slash becoming human. But let's get into it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human in the face of death, loss, and grief. It's 9 o'clock a.m. on a Monday. You aren't at work yet. You took a half day because you need to be at the funeral home by 10. You've got a bit more elegance to your apparel than normal. It's respectable to dress well for the dead. You show up ready to endure. I mean, you feel the loss. There are tears. But finding a seat, figuring out to to say in the brief seconds you will have with the family, deciding if you should go to the casket and what you should do if you take the path in that line. 
And then there's the stuff. The songs are either going to be relics of time or, or something intensely melancholic, probably with poor sound quality and the speaking. You know, hopefully, someone close to the deceased shares something, but there's probably some clergy who is either going to fumble through words, read out of a book, or turn this into a conversion opportunity. And then it's back to work. Now, I know that's a bit pessimistic. And I'm not trying to say that there is nothing valuable in that experience. I've watched many people find moments of beauty and healing in the common funeral scene. But it does seem to be lacking something. And I've been around a lot of memorial services. And I often wonder if that's the best we can do. But beyond our current rituals of dealing with death, grief, and loss, there's also a questionable disposition that I often see. I mean, I mean, there's lots of awkward moments, like when the bereaved is talking with someone who has come to visit, and, and the bereaved says, thank you for being here, and the visitor says, you too. That was strange. But how often do we hear people, well-meaning people, try to break tension or offer assistance and just butcher it? Like when you look at someone whose infant has just died and say, everything happens for a reason, you might have terrible ethics or a vastly immature religious theology, or you might not simply understand the complex depth you are speaking toward in a moment of terrible grief. Or they, they're in a better place. Or making, you know, a comment about how, you know, they had it coming or they should be blamed. Or even on the other side of the spectrum. You know, most people, when they die, are complicated but we want to break the ice. So we just lavish them with praise, almost pretending that the situation and the person are different than they actually are. You know, sometimes this, this is even done maliciously. I have seen situations where a father died who had sexually abused his children. And, and some people, you know, they would just talk about how great the dad was just because that's what you do at a funeral. And I know this is an extreme example, but grief isn't always lovely. Sometimes the bereaved are processing the destruction of a loved one. But this family, to continue the example, was also divided because of this very issue. And there were extended members of the tribe who always rebuked the children for their mean claims about their dad. So they came up and made sure to remark on how great the father was and how he would never do anything wrong without specifically referencing the incident. And, and they'd say it's a shame that he was treated so poorly throughout his life by them. I'm just saying, we don't always handle death well. And both the practices and the rituals of death and the disposition we either haphazardly or unintentionally carry with us, it's, they're a bit rough. So, let's look at a couple thoughts on grief. I, I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Then we should probably talk about memorials. And then I want to offer an alternative approach to all of this and, and share that reflection. But let's start with grief. When we talk about grief, we usually mean a response to the death of a person. Usually a person we were connected to. But grief 
is a psychological response to any loss. Most of these things have a minimal impact on us. There's not much to grieve. You know, when a person on the other side of the world dies, there is technically grief there. It just doesn't move the scale that much. Or we lose a day. Technically, that's a loss, and therefore, there's grief. But there's also almost no impact to us within that. So grief deals with the death of our fellow humans, especially those we confess love for. And this more specifically is called bereavement, but it also deals with all sorts of loss. Loss of relationships, loss of roles, loss of parts of your identity, loss of seasons of life. But even material things are involved. You know, you lose a house, grief. You lose an object, grief. Money, grief. Or you have the loss of experiences. You know, when an event is done, or you lose a part of your lifestyle, these all deal with grief and all need to be considered with the grieving process. And this may be partly why we don't deal with loss well, because we don't think grieving applies to all these different losses. So we might not be paying attention to them or, or giving them the credence they deserve. Another note, grieving your own death is a part of this too. Now, this was last episode, kind of. Just don't forget about that part. In fact, the original grieving process research was created for the purpose of grieving your own death. And if you go back to the last episode, you'll notice that the arc of the conversation follows the same process we're about to describe. And another layer. As we will see, grief also deals with the anticipation of the loss of those who are still alive. This is what people are talking about when they say things like, you know, hold those you love a little tighter. But here's another important aspect of grief. So it deals with lots of things, especially people. But the grieving process also never ends. And this is important. And this isn't just me giving comforting words, words to someone who's still mourning. You know, you, you see this said a lot, you know, grieving never ends, mourning never ends. It's literally true. When there is a loss, the loss is permanent. There is no way to put things back like they were. So this process, you know, it happens on different timetables. And, and there's, there's literally an infinite number of ways to experience it, but it's always with you. You can change how you experience the process and you can have, you know, either healthier or unhealthier variations of it, but you can't remove the process. Now, I'm assuming that you've heard of the grieving process. Most people have. It's one of those phrases that gets used a lot. And I also think it's understood a fraction of the amount that it gets spoken but the grieving process is usually some form of the following. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So sometimes people just say, you know, I'm in the grieving process, and they don't actually know what that is, and it's just an overused phrase that nobody takes the time to understand. But sometimes we also can associate, you know, some of those five categories that are often accompanied with it. Now, those five, those are the most common, but that's not actually like a scientific law or, or some inherent thing that somebody discovered went, oh, see, this is grief. That's just a common way people describe the experience. In fact, 
there's a bunch of different grief processes that researchers have proposed. So while there isn't just one definitive absolute grief process, there are some general principles that seem to show up more frequently than others, but it's not rigid. And often these principles take lots of different forms. There can be lots of different parts of the experience. And, and even, you know, these principles rarely happen in order. So what's more common in grief is that you move through common themes or experiences. And so let me just share the most notable ones. First is some form of distress, which it's just a way to articulate a wide range of emotions where you're very responsive to the event that's happened, to the loss. Lots of memories come up. You know, all sorts of considerations flood the brain. Distress is when your amygdala is heavy. You know, this is a throw your fist into the air and weep and wonder just how anything is going to be good again. And I can't stress this enough. When you have loss and you feel this stuff, please be honest that this is normal. Cry, stare longingly into nothing. I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've sat with a family or friends and they're talking about this person that they're about to bury and they start crying and then they apologize. It's like, if you didn't cry right now, I'd be concerned. To be impacted emotionally is to show that this matters. Your entire being is doing what it's supposed to do. So that's distress. And that's, that's part of our body and our mind and every aspect of our lives responding to something that's very real. The second theme or experience is trauma. Okay, this is where you move past emotional response to what is more akin to depression. So this isn't just response anymore. This is a state of being. The language that we use of disbelief and shock, you know, that, that all deals with this part. So if distress is the initial wound, this is the long-term injury. This is the, the, the experience that's sticking around and, and weighing even more heavily post-event. Then there's affliction. And this is another level of, of, of psychological emotion where you experience guilt or remorse or regret. You know, sometimes this leads, leads to fear. Withdrawal is another common behavior, which withdrawal is sometimes talked about as its own principle within all of this. But uh, it, it's, it's that distress kind of response, but now it's, it's an upper tier of, of emotional response. And for trauma and affliction, especially these two, we see this when someone says, you know, we had the funeral and then the mourning began. And this is the experience that, you know, kind of stays with you even when the distress is gone. So those are the three biggest ones, but there's actually one more. And, and before we get into this one, it's worth pointing out that, that I know we just talked a lot about like emotion, but grief is not just in your head and it's, it's not just emotion or it's not just mental capacities. Grief is a form of suffering and suffering is something that involves the whole person. So that is, that's beliefs, that is emotions, 
it is the mental processes, but it's also the physical, the biological, the anatomical components, the social life, the existential life, all of it. Distress and trauma and affliction, or, or if you're just talking about those, those normal five stages, it's really important to see that this affects everything. So dealing with grief, you know, it's, it's not just, well, I need to go get counseling or I need to go get spiritual support, but it's also, it can't just be handled with medication or when people talk about, you know, community is the answer. Everything is involved and we probably need all of those. So whether the response to grief is, is healthy and whatever way you interact with these three themes or experiences or principles we just talked about, you have to pay attention to every part of your existence because it's, it's a dealing with and affecting every part of you. And that brings us to what is the most notable aspect of grief. That is also, in my opinion, the most overtly necessary when talking about death. And it's meaning-making. Meaning-making. Sometimes, you know, the normal grief stages that we know, we'll, we'll talk about this as support. But I don't think that goes far enough. Eventually, you get to a place where, you know, part of your mourning and grieving happens by you helping others mourn and grieve a similar loss to one you've experienced, right? That's kind of, that's support. But it goes further than that. Meaning-making support is part of it. But if there was a point, if there's a goal to grief, this would be it. Because you're interacting with grief in a way that it leads to a practical transformation. Sometimes this is called practical satisfaction in terms of like trauma and tragedy. But there are actually two divergent processes to this that get talked about. So a couple ways you see it. And this, and this isn't just with meaning making. It's also with distress and trauma and affliction. But there's instrumental grieving, and then there's instinctive grieving. And it deals with all the, pres- the principles, but especially meaning-making. Instrumental grieving is where you process all of this, well, instrumentally, you know, by actively doing things. So the person who is angry, you know, and they go and chop down a tree or something, that's instrumental. Um, or, or making meaning by starting an orga- organization to help other victims of the suffering you've experienced. That's instrumental. And here's a way that maybe you've seen this. I've been at deathbeds and the person will take their last breath and immediately someone starts cleaning, picking things up. And we'll look at that and we'll go, how callous, how removed for you to just start cleaning up. This person just died. No, they need to respond with their hands. I'm not saying that's the healthiest way to respond in that moment, but that's instrumental grief. And that's how some people have to process those kinds of things. They have to do something. On the other side of this is instinctive. And it's a more reflective process. You know, journaling would be the most notable example. But it's when you're processing the grief with your mind, internally. You know, there's a puzzle before you, so you just sit and this this can be just as callous. You know, neither is better or worse, and both can be enacted healthily or unhealthily. But either way you go about it, there's also two avenues to the process. And, and 
now we've arrived at the important thing. So whether or not you know all that stuff about the grieving process or instrumental or instinctive, this is where it's important. When meaning making happens, which is why I think that principle kind of sits by itself, that goal marks a healthy engagement that, that it's happened. And this is called proactive grieving or a proactive response to loss. Sometimes uh, you'll see this talked about as acute grief or integrative grief. I really like that one, um, which was not does not mean that nothing negative happens within the midst of this. It, it's not that there's not bad stuff there. It's not about what happens to you. It's about how you handle what happens, just like conflict. You can't avoid the junk, but you can choose how you will interact with it. Proactive grieving is where you interact with all of those emotions and meaning making all of the principles in a way that's transformative. There's a woman named Judith Herman. She's a famous psychologist who specializes in trauma. And she has this quote that poignantly captures what we actually often see, which is the other response. Quote, the typical response to atrocity is to banish it from consciousness. End quote. Grief suffering, loss, you name it, our normal response, our, our initial response is often to avoid. And this avoidance is what is called reactive grieving or a reactive response to loss. This is where you use denial or blame or revenge or avoidance to keep the suffering and grief and loss at a distance. It is pretending, you know, on one hand, uh, it's, and then, it, you know, you have some redirecting the, those natural emotions on the other. It tries to move around the loss instead of moving through it. Withdrawal is an example. Uh, Brene Brown, who, who a lot of people are familiar with, she talks about this as keeping the car in the garage. You know, you were hurt, you are mourning, so you make sure you will never have loss again. And you just keep yourself away from everything. It's a, it's a form of avoidance. Or denial, you know, where you hide all the stuff and allow this giant elephant to go undiscussed under the rug. And, and not to be insulting, but this is childish. Seriously, children misbehave. They lash out. They, they do irrational things. And it is usually because they are processing something that they don't know how to process. Well, the reactive response to grief is the adult version of that same thing. We don't know how to say we are hurting or we're scared or uncertain or overwhelmed. And so we try to hold our chin up or we hide behind substances or we escape or we get angry about trivial things or we just make sure we stay really busy. This is reactive grief. We're trying to move the thing out of our purview or redirect it somewhere. It's, it's, it's pretending or it's avoidance or it's denial or it's revenge or it's blame. How often have you been put off or, or hurt by someone because they didn't know how to say they were scared so they decided to draw blood instead? Reactive Grieving is where we walk around with wounds and we don't address them. And often it leads to just carrying a sword with us instead. 
Now, on the other end of this is proactive. And proactive grieving, is it's the opposite. It's about confronting the wounds lacerated by the suffering in order to heal them. So one allows the wounds to fester, and it gets infected and nasty. The other integrates all of those components and emotions and experiences and processes and just takes steps, whether instrumentally or instinctively, to care for the wound. It's going to become a scar. The grief never leaves but it's also found healing. It's found meaning making. It's found transformation. And you see this when someone has this mixed experience where there is loss and anger and pain and sadness. And it's sitting side by side with joy and relief and celebration and acceptance and forgiveness. But proactive is how you make meaning in the midst of all of that stuff. You're still walking with this weathered skin around your soul, but the grief, it, it, it buries a seed and it still has that negative, terrible, tragic component to it, but it does it in a way where it actually sprouts a beautiful plant as a result. And you can see uh, people who, who have grieved proactively in dealing with death because there's something that they tend to have in the midst of their suffering, but then with others, and it's it's compassion. You, you know, those examples I gave at the beginning of stuff that I've heard at funerals or visitations, those, those are reactive. They also need some insight on things like reflective listening and empathy. But meaning-making is often partnered with compassion, you know, which literally means to suffer with. And when you healthily move through your grief— it often moves you into others' grief, sitting side by side with them. So that that's the first and major component we need to pay attention to. The grieving process and reactive versus proactive responses. But that then brings up another dynamic, memorials. And I'm guessing you have witnessed the modern version of uh, memorials to some extent. Other parts of the world, I, I do think, do a better job than you, the United States at, at maintaining former rituals. But the funeral service in the United States has kind of taken on an assumption of its own. I, however, am fascinated by ancient cultures. And almost every single ancient culture I've studied has its own unique ritual surrounding death. Now, I think I think that the major difference between most death experiences in previous epochs of history and the modern one in the United States is because death was also a much more vivid, real experience. I mean, the the life expectancy was way lower, so there's that. There was also a lot more of the population brought into war and violence. You know, a common civilian was quite likely to see a human killed in battle. Anyway, the Previous civilizations also didn't have specific spaces set aside for medical care like we do. We meaning uh, a 21st century citizen of the United States of America. Most humans experienced birth and death right there in the home. And, and those people who were born and died were absolutely essential to your survival. You also knew way less people. And so losing one was a significant percentage of your social sphere. Death 
for most of human history was right in front of you. And we've done a better job of living longer. We know more people. We've eliminated a lot of the risk. We've moved death to spaces where they don't have to be seen, which also comes with great medical advancement. Generally, I think we're grateful for this. But we also don't deal with death as well. And those dynamics might be connected. So I find it interesting that most of these ancient cultures, surrounded by death, had very intentional acts to create a permanence to someone's presence. They were very explicitly creating meaning. Obviously, there are things like, you know, the pyramids and mummification, but those are quite rare in proportion to, you know, the population of history. More humbly, the ancient death cults that existed, they're a bit weird by our standards. I'm sure they were wrapped in... uh, some strange metaphysical philosophy, we'll say. But they were a way healthier way of dealing with loss. And the more you look at these ancient death cults, they were actually a way, I think, for people to deal with their own mortality by honoring the dead. In the face of of terrible loss, they kept meaning alive. And, And this was all practical means of grieving proactively. And it was often instrumental. But these were tangible acts carried out for the process of grieving, and they did it quite well, even if they didn't have the psychological research behind it. And and here's something I find interesting. Whenever I do a funeral, and people say, you know, that was really meaningful, or thank you for that. A lot of the times what people are looking for, you know, if you officiate funerals, well, here you go, here's my advice. They're looking for the person to be honored. And the reason that they're looking for the person to be honored is because they hope that one day when they die, they too will be honored. A lot of the times, you know, funerals are for the living because it's about our grief. I also think funerals are for the living because we're wondering about how somebody else will one day grieve us. But here we are in a very different world from those ancient death cults. And we push death to the side. You know, until it can no longer be avoided, really. And it's almost like we have this naive posturing of immortality. But these ancient cultures, they embraced their their mortality because it was so integral to how everything worked. You know, they were honest, I suppose. But their intention on honoring the dead was not only about their, their own existential mortality. I think that was there. It was also a practice in transcending the self which is not as necessary for us in our very efficient, luxurious, individualistic culture. But there's a a sociologist named uh, Emile Durkheim, one of the first sociologists who really focused on religion. And and he pointed this out, kind of talking about these these death rites or death cults that he noticed in a lot of uh, traditional cultures. And he called this an eternality of being. An eternality of being. Here's what he meant. Other people die, and you will die. But these death cults acted as a means to ensure that you and all of your predecessors were a part of something that never died. And so in honoring the dead, you are sort of transcending yourself and belonging to this this identity that was going to continue on even after your life. 
grieving for most of history was a way of participating and continuing the great story of the world. There were intentional acts with symbolic objects. You know, you sat with the loss for a long period of time. You cared for the dead. You honored their existence and mourned their absence. You shared their story and sought to continue it. You enshrined their memory, and you believed someone would do the same for you. We don't have that as much anymore. So how do we capture that kind of intentionality today? And I'm not saying we should go perform the same rituals. They are a bit strange. They're a bit weird. We know more about life and existence and science and psychology. We don't need to replicate the ritual. They handled the grieving process well. And they tapped into a human instinct that I think we might have forgotten. So here's one take, a way we could think about this. And I've done, I've done a lot of funerals, and I've tried to balance what needs to happen within the modern structures that we have. So whether through giving a eulogy or, or talking with the family and friends of the deceased, this has kind of been the focus. This is how a, a way that I found to interact with this process while still respecting the funerary structures that we have in place. So if I'm thinking about how to interact with death that uses all of these ideas so far, these are the kind of things that I think we should say or think about or talk about or try to find a way to do. Any story that is over is one that ended too soon. The gift of someone's life in all of its forms builds the world we find ourselves in. Being in contact with another being means that we are changed by them. We are different because they were here. They brought forth the world as we know it. I mean, not, not to get all nerdy, but phenomenologically, it is true. Your empirical experience of the world is shaped by who you know. And when someone has that effect on us, it is because their life it is like a gift to us, and that gift is now gone. The world is no longer the same. And that isn't always lovely. The great philosopher Anthony Bourdain, who was also a chef, said it this way, quote, As you move through this life and this world, you change things slightly. You leave marks behind, however small. And in return, life leaves marks on you. Most of the time, those marks on your body or on your heart are beautiful. Often, though, they hurt. End quote. It's messy. It's complicated. But the world isn't the same. And you have to take time for that. You have to pay attention to how the landscape has shifted. The Jewish tradition has something called a sitting shiva, where you just sit in silence, if necessary, with those in mourning. You feel it. You do rituals. You take time. You tell stories. You create moments that carry memories. You reveal the life of the person in all of its beauty and messiness and love and joy and pain. But the only requirement is to be there. And so whatever we are going through, whatever loss we are experiencing, it begins with acknowledging the loss. You have to start there. But grief also invites us to do something in response. You start by breathing in their life, but you do so 
so that it will continue to shape your life and therefore the world. Where there was once a gift is now a trembling void that feels irreplaceable. But regardless of your religious disposition, we innately have a sense that though the story of someone's life may be over, the story of their gift is not. This is the complicated reality of human beings. The memory, the impact, and the understanding of life from this person remains even though they are physically gone. And the language for this, the word for this, is what we have seen. Honor. You remember their gift. You celebrate their gift. You mourn the loss of the gift in the form of their life, but then you honor it. And the way we honor a gift is not by talking about it necessarily. It isn't by just showing up to a sanitized funeral home for an hour or less on a Monday morning and then returning back to work. I often wonder how someone with with their years of life can be summed up in 30 minutes. I mean, I've done funerals where the family explicitly said, we want this to be quick. And that could be because it's so hard. But regardless, if my life can be summed up in a 30-minute or less event, please, just don't even bother. See, the only way to honor a life is to be changed by it. No moment from here on out is going to be the same. No holiday, no laugh, no event, nothing. But the best way to grieve well is for you to not be the same either. You have to take that which you still have and you move forward with a piece of their life embedded in your flesh. The dead leave us with something. We have to pay attention to that. But then we have to decide what we are going to do with it. One of the greatest compliments you might receive in response to someone you are grieving is that when we look at you, we see a little glimpse of them because you carry their name now. You hold their memory. Though there is an absence of breath, their story is not finished. But the story is now dependent on you to carry it. Sometimes at funerals, I'll often read this poem which comes from the Jewish tradition, which I think sums this up well. When I die, give what's left of me away to children and those looking for hope. And if you need to cry, cry for one another walking the street beside you. And when you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give me. I want to leave you with something Something better than words or sounds. Look for me in the people I've known or loved. And if you cannot give me away, at least let me live on in your eyes and not just your mind. Love doesn't die. People do. So when all that's left of me is love, give that love, just as I did. So we have a lot of cultural work to do when it comes to grieving and memorials. And I hope you found that helpful or at least it got you to maybe think about the topic a little more. But in the end, we are talking about individual people who are dealing with this inevitable, all-encompassing phenomenon of death. So I want to share something that I've used to help me 
process all of this stuff. And, and I've come back to this again and again when I am grieving loss. And the invitation here is to reflect. And you may have someone in your head that you've lost and absolutely keep them in mind, no matter how long ago it was. But maybe you haven't. And there is another explicit invitation here. And part of the hope is that those you haven't yet lost will also surface in your mind because grief isn't just about death. And part of the meaning making we can do now is to have healthier relationships before they are gone. But also, a healthy relationship with death may actually lead to healthier relationships with the living. Really, all of this comes down to reflecting on our finitude and taking grief and loss seriously in response so that we can deal with loss but also allow it to affect our presence we have with people while we are still alive. So when you are ready, I invite you to work through this reflection. Thanks for listening. There's a story written by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry called The Little Prince that greatly confronts the reality of every living being, that your time is limited and that you ought to consider intentionally how you spend it. Especially true in this regard is the people who will share that time with you. At one point, the little prince interacts with a fox. For me, you are only a little boy, like a hundred thousand other little boys, and I have no need of you, and you have no need of me either. For you, I'm only a fox like a hundred thousand other foxes. But if you tame me, we'll need each other. You'll be the only boy in the world for me, and I'll be the only fox in the world for you. You become responsible forever for what you have tamed. At another point, the little prince is reflecting on his love of Rose. The people where you live, the little prince said, grow 5,000 roses in one garden, yet they don't find what they're looking for, and yet what they're looking for could be found in a single rose. It is the time you have wasted for your rose that makes your rose so important. Which is then contrasted with an image that greatly critiques our culture. The little prince is interacting with a snake in the desert. And we read this. Where are the people? Resumed the little prince at last. It's a little lonely in the desert. It is lonely when you are among people too, said the snake. The great truth we are invited to see is this. In the end, all you will have is the relationship. It is no coincidence that after a tragedy or a funeral, we have a keen awareness to hold those we love a little tighter. The emotional experience of loss often compels us to take seriously those we still have but that centering force can easily be forgotten in the drive and desire of our everyday lives. We must decide, then, not to wait until we have nothing left to hold to be with those whom we desperately desire to hold once more. May we be reminded, even compelled, to flourish the relationship while we still do have it. May we learn from the stories of those who have traversed that difficult landscape and commit to not replicating the mistakes made through a lifetime, but to truly, in the end, hold tighter than ever what we have held so dear over the days, the hours, 
and the continuous moments that have defined two lives together. I invite you to take a moment to reflect. Have you lost someone you love? A spouse, a parent, a grandparent, a friend, a brother or sister, a child? Who are those that you yearn to have one more moment with? Those who have left scars by their absence. But consider also who you still have, who has yet to be lost to the inescapability of death. A spouse, a parent, a grandparent, a friend, a brother, or sister, a child. I invite you to remember those moments of last contact. Though it may be difficult, there is a profound sense of hope, joy, and comfort by entering the space of loss. It was again what the little prince greatly pronounces. It is a mysterious place, the land of tears. Possibly more imperative, however, I invite you to imagine the moments of last contact yet to come, that what you hold will one day be unholdable, that you are not guaranteed what and who you love, that the nuance of life is the inevitability of death. And in both your remembrance and your imagination, allow this narrative to infinitely shape yours. An excerpt from Broken Music, a memoir. I'm led into a room with a single cot against the wall where a crucifix hangs. I haven't seen him in a number of months and in the bed is a man I do not recognize. I imagine for a moment that they have put me in the wrong room, but the skeleton below me is my father, watching me with the bleak staring eyes of a starving child. The kind nurse who brought me in quietly pulls up a chair. Here's your famous son come to see you, Ernie, she says. I try to compose myself. Part of me wants to run out of that room like a frightened boy. Hello, Dad. I'm going to leave you two alone now. I'm sure you have a lot to talk about, says the nurse. Then she leaves us. I have no idea what to say, so I take his hand in mine and gently massage the soft triangle of flesh between his thumb and his first finger. I haven't held his hand since I was small. They are big square hands massively knuckled with strong muscular fingers deeply lined and grooved. My father's hands are not the delicate, expressive hands of an artist, but they have a kind of elegance, and so close to death that they possess an honest and translucent beauty. They are the hands of a working man. 
come from, son? I came in from America last night, Dad. He chuckles. It's a long way to come to see your dad like this. You were feeling better a month ago. He shakes his head. I haven't been the same since your mother died. I remain silent, knowing how much that small confession has cost him. I reach for his other hand and begin to massage it, but he winces. I wonder how much pain he is in. Perhaps he needs another shot of morphine. He seems a hundred years old now. I look from his eyes to the cross on the wall and then down at his two hands cradled in mine. It is then that I receive something like the jolt of an electric shock because apart from the color, his hands and mine are identical. But it's too late to go back I can see the darkness through the cracks daylight fading I curse the breaking the day is gone the day is gone The square width of the palms, the same carved scars in the folds of the skin, the big wide knuckles wrinkled like the knees of an elephant, and the musculature fanning out from the wrist to the thick and still powerful fingers. I stare at them for a long time, turning them over and over. Why had I never noticed this before when it was so obvious? We have the same hands, Dad. Look. I am a child again, desperately trying to get his attention. He looks down at the four square slabs of flesh and bone. Aye, son, but you used yours better than I used mine. Run away. I'll just run away like a child from all of them to you. And now most constant mistake is I don't know what I love till it's gone there's an absolute quiet in the room there's something like a small bird fighting to get out of my throat and I can hardly breathe my mind is racing trying in vain to remember when he'd ever paid me such a compliment when he'd ever acknowledged who I was or what I did or what I'd achieved or what it had cost me he had waited until now, when his words would be devastating. His eyes are closed now, as if the last few minutes have exhausted him. It is dark outside. 
and kiss him softly in the center of his forehead and whisper that he is a good man and that I love him. But it's too late to go back I can see the darkness through the cracks Daylight fading I curse the breaking the day One day, you will stand over the body of another, or another will stand over the body of yourself, and there will be nothing left but what you have created in the moments of your shared story. The gift of someone's life in all its forms builds the world we find ourselves in. And when we come in contact with another being, their breath being finished simply leaves you with a piece of their gift now embedded in your flesh. In the end, that is all you will have. There is a chance, then, that in those last moments there will be regret. Regret of missed time. Regret of missed opportunity. Regret of focusing on the wrong things. Because when you touch their skin for the last time, a misplaced priority and annoyance or the way they didn't meet your expected preferences will be sublime to the power of their presence. For those whom have left us, our story with them, then, does not need to end in a casket. Their gift can continue. You can still choose the relationship and honor their life with your continued breath. What you did have, you still have. And we can still cherish it, hold it tightly with all of our being to shape the future through what has gone before us. But the hope might be that we can learn from those who have suffered the tragedy of a deathbed gone unfulfilled, of a relationship gone astray with regret, that we will choose now the power of our presence, that we will choose the relationship. Because in the end, that is all we will have. Let the darkness see through the cracks.